Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. How? What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? Whatever the fuck you want to call yourselves. Welcome to the show. I am standing, no, sitting. I'm sitting. I'm sitting in a comfortable chair facing out a window 24 floors up at the palms hotel in las vegas you know i take these gigs in las vegas and i always wonder after i've been there one night why the fuck i do it i've been here twice i haven't been there that much but i know that vegas just kills my heart for some reason i cannot fucking take it i try to bend it into something that i w- i'm going to like you know have a great time that i'm going to be able to appreciate from a distance but there's something about it that just saddens me outside of the whole I- extravaganza or the entire disneyland element or the the sheer massiveness of the spectacle of it there's something else that's been bothering me about it i've been here a couple times in the last few years now mind you i have nothing against vegas in the sense that i used to come here when i was a kid When I was like, I don't know, I must have been 11 or 12 years old. I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and my grandparents lived in New Jersey, and they'd been coming to Vegas since the 50s, I think. And they would meet us out here because it was close to New Mexico, and they liked coming out here. So we would come out as a family and go meet my grandpa Jack and my grandma Goldie, who loved coming to Vegas. They loved the shows. My grandmother loved Buddy Hackett. They loved to go see Wayne Newton. They did all the things back in the day when there's only a few hotels and the Strip was still what it was. Just talked to a cab driver a second ago just about when the Strip was the Strip. And I remember when I was here when I was a kid, the first MGM Grand was only a few years old. And it was pretty special. There was something special about it. I think one time when we met my grandparents out here when I was about 15, my father, for some reason, actually had a fake mustache. And he glued a fake mustache on me. And I wore these sunglasses. And I walked around the casino playing blackjack. And I swear to God, I was 14 or 15 years old. And there is no fucking way that that would happen now. Never. I mean, come on, 14 or 15 years old? They had to know. But they let me gamble. I, it was it was pretty great, but if I, I wish I had a picture of myself because God knows the, the mustache couldn't have looked real. I mean, when someone's 14 or 15 years old, they look 14 or 15 years old. There's no mustache that's going to hide that. But I do remember sitting at dinner with my grandma Goldie uh, at the MGM Grand in the fancy room. And there was something intimate about Vegas at that time. There was something about the fact that my grandparents could come out every year to whatever hotel that they were loyal to. And my grandpa had a guy. There was the guy that he knew at the club. There was a guy he knew at the bar. There was a guy he knew that he could grease for for shows. He'd give everybody 20 bucks. And they'd tear carry you. they remember your name. That would never fucking happen here now. And I remember sitting with my grandma Goldie at dinner. And, you know, talking about Vegas, and this was right when it was shifting over to uh, to corporate ownership of the entire town. And she literally said, uh, you know, Marky, it was nicer when the boys ran things. There was a, there was just something special about it because there certainly isn't anything special about it now. And the more I come here, which isn't that often, but every time I do and I see this parade of humanity uh, dressed poorly in clothes that they may have bought for the trip or clothes that they may have worn once, clothes that don't fit well, clothes that they think is glamorous. I mean, certainly there's a lot of attractive people here, but there are just hundreds of people here seemingly forcing themselves to have what is defined as a good time in Vegas. And there's a sadness to the whole thing. And I couldn't quite wrap my brain around what exactly it was that the feeling that I was getting. And and this morning when I was uh, getting a massage downstairs, which I don't do very often, but my brain was drifting, I, I started to think about my trip to Italy. And when I was in Italy, you know, every little town in Italy has a huge cathedral uh even the smallest poorest towns had these spectacular cathedrals and i always had felt you know every time i walked into one you know the amount of money that was put into it the amount of of creativity you know they they would hire artists they would have them design the cathedral obviously there was a, always a religious theme there was always crypts there was always dead wizards and popes around you know encased in things but just the 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 duomo themselves the 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 incredible space 
in the cathedral. Uh, when I walked in, you know, as someone who's not religious or Catholic, you have that moment where you're like, oh, my God, this is beautiful. But then after that, I started thinking that if I were a peasant or if I was somebody who uh, who believed or somebody that lived in a small town, perhaps in a, a fairly rudimentary living situation, I'm not going to say a hut, but certainly a, a small house or whatever, whatever period in time that those uh, places were erected, and you walk into this place just by the opulence and by the sheer nature of the space, you are going to be leveled. You are going to find your humanity. You are going to feel small and human in the face of, of this house of God that was designed to make you feel small and human. And also, mind you, to, to fear God. And I started to, to realize that I started to get the same feeling about some of these places in Vegas, that the, the opulence and the glamour and the amount of money that went into the craftsmanship in the place. I mean, fuck, if you go to the Bellagio, they got Cholule glass all over the place. They've got beautiful marble, mosaic tiles, flown millions and millions of dollars were went into this. They went into these places. Even the place we're staying in now, which is a low-key one, is not as spectacular as, say, the Wynn. Or, or the Bellagio, which I went to the other night. And just to look at the art and all the craftsmanship that went into making people feel that they were inside something spectacular, inside something glamorous, inside something classy, inside something that, that represented some sort of, uh, opulence and, 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 and grandeur. And maybe there was a time briefly where people went into those places and, and they were actually you know, acted appropriately and, and might have been classy in and of themselves. But that certainly is not the case. Just parades of people losing money. There's just a, a sad humanity to the whole thing. But I see all these people being incredibly vulnerable for some reason because they're all out of place. And and the God here is certainly money. And the hope is that you will win some that somehow or another you're going to be the one that leaves with a pocket full of cash. And they create these trappings to make you feel like it's some grand exercise, some beautiful good time. But I'll tell you, man, it is fucking draining, and I can't help but personalize it. I don't gamble well. I, I don't have good luck. I like to think I don't have bad luck, but shit, I can't get fucking cards to save my life. And every time I sit at a blackjack table, and I don't know if, if anybody has the same experience, but I will sit there, I'll blow through $100, $200. I don't like losing much over that or else I feel like an asshole. But I'll just look at my cards and I'll look at the luck that I have at any one table and I'll somehow take it as being indicative of my whole fucking life. And then that's when you start betting more because you're like, no, I'm going to beat the odds. I don't have this kind of luck. I'm going to, I'm going to win. And then you start putting more on the table out of spite. And then you realize that you are acting exactly as they want you to act. That is exactly what they want you to do is they want you to hold on to the hope of winning because this is the cathedral of greed. This is exactly what America is right now. And the more I walk around there, it seems like there's not a lot of people here. It seems like that everybody who is here is forcing themselves to have a good time. How can you just in this economy throw away money and feel good about yourself? How can you look at this as a good time? And then I started to look on the most, you know, look at the mosaics on the floor and I started to realize, you know, this 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 particular art form mosaic was definitely taken from ancient Greece or ancient Rome. And then I started to picture all these huge hotels, these 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 palaces of greed and grandeur as, as being empty, as being the exact indication of the collapse of empire. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I can't help myself because I don't drink. I don't like to gamble. I don't smoke. I'm not going to go to strip clubs. I'm not going to go to other shows. And I just see this as the end of time here, that this is the end of America. And maybe I'm too heavy hearted for this fucking monologue, but Jesus Christ, Come day three in Las Vegas, I am drained. My soul is taxed, and I feel bad for us all. Is that wrong? I'm going to go to the Liberace Museum, because that's really the heart of it, and see if that makes me feel any better. But this is not the business I'm in. This is not the business I wanted to be in. And when I'm here, it makes me question, you know, what the fuck am I doing? 
It worked. It worked. I just got out of the other part. I had to walk across the parking lot to go to the uh, the costume part where they had all the costumes. And uh, I'm in. I'm, I'm going to do it. I, I think that I, I've been misguided. Uh, I've been on an empty path looking for little personal truths, celebrating my own you know, neurotic insights and my own frustration with life, presenting that to people in as raw a form as possible. Those, those days are gone. I'm fucking done with it. I'm hiring a personal uh, fashion designer. I'm going to start doing costumes. I'm going to start doing, uh, I'm, I'm thinking a lot of feathers. I'm thinking hats. I'm thinking a, a lot of rhinestones. And I, you know, I may not have the talent to, uh, to play piano or to be a song and dance man. But if I think, I, if I just go up on stage wearing a multi-layered cape, uh, several different um, uh, fabrics with several different shades of uh, maybe violet or, uh, or pinks or maybe ruby reds with a lot of rhinestones and embroidery and uh, uh, a bow tie, perhaps a hat, and talked about my problems. I think that would be, that would be something that no one is doing right now. Just incredibly garish outfits. Maybe I'd be lowered down on uh, on some sort of uh, cable to to big loud music, perhaps a uh, a full orchestra. Lowered down onto the stage, and then just approach the mic with my hands out, people applauding the grand entrance, and then just do my act like I do now. That would be interesting. That would be, you know, just sort of like, you know, just open with like, what the fuck? Am I right? I don't know what we're going to do about this economy and shit. Yeah, I think that would be that would be an interesting juxtaposition. I think it might be my ticket. So I guess I learned something in Vegas that I'm going to take a different approach. I'm going to be a showman. And that's me standing outside of the Liberace Museum. And this is me walking towards the 7-Eleven across the street. I got to I got to find a designer or something. <laughs> One of the comic legends that many of you probably don't know uh, of, of my type of comedy lives right here in Vegas, has, has been living here for several years, and I've tracked him down, and he should be up here in the room any minute now, Ron Schock. Uh, if you've never heard that name, he was a, a fairly important Texas comic from the uh, from the Comedy Workshop in Houston, which is where uh, Sam Kennison, Bill Hicks, several other people that you may or may not know that I'll probably talk about with Ron in a minute came out of. And, and Bill Hicks actually thanked Ron Schock, and they were very close. And I'm hoping to talk to him about his life because he is a uh, a, a an amazing raconteur, uh, has several albums out, and, and was a great influence on a lot of people that you probably know. And if you don't know Ron, uh, uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation with him, and I'm, I'm hoping you get to know him as well. You have many lives, Ron Shaw. You've lived many lives. Boy, I have. Which number? Which number life are you on? God, I don't know. Let me think. All, the, all American boy, stone cold criminal, <laughs> corporate hotshot comic. Four, fourth. Oh, good. Fourth All right. So if we're going to judge by the cat model, you, you've got a few you more know, to I got go. A few more. You yeah. Know. Well, that's good. You ready to expand? <laughs> Who knows what's going to happen next? That's right. You know, I mean, who would have thunk it? You know, when I walked out, when I I, I did several stretches, but the, I did one in a, in a maximum security penitentiary. And as I walk out, I'd made a, a conscious decision in there. I was never going to be back in prison again. And yeah. Not to be back in prison meant that you don't do anything that will get you put in prison. Right. What I, were you I, in for? Uh, burglary. Uh, I had They caught me uh, coming out of a jewelry store. I I blew safes. I was I'd worked for them. I I ended up in Orleans Parish Prison when I was a kid, runaway for stealing a car. And while I'm there, I meet guys from the New Orleans mob who are impressed with my moxie, and they go, "Well, when you get out, kid, you know you got a job. You got a job, right?" (laughs) And and I worked as a here. I'm I'm like 17 years old. I'm in the streets of New Orleans, and uh, I'm a a pitch man in front of. 
uh, a titty bar. Yeah. And uh, right there on Bourbon Street. And I, I stood out there and said, 48 double D, biggest pair you'll ever see. And uh, they they liked my moxie at that, so they made me part of a, a burglary ring. Uh-huh. And we burglarized department stores. And they what they would do is they'd put me up in the ceiling. Yeah. You know, we'd go in during the day because they didn't have cameras like they do now, right? Yeah. You know, and when it's busy, we'd meet in one of the restrooms, and these two guys would flip me up into the ceiling. I'd wait until like 2 o'clock in the morning and drop down, and they'd taught me how to turn off the burglar alarm system. <laughs> Turn it off. We just back a truck up to the loading dock. <laughs> and how were you small? Yeah, I was a little guy. I was pretty. <laughs> how light. old were you? Seventeen. Uh huh. And uh, so then I joined the army, and because uh, that, as I say in my act, that judge gave me a choice. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people deal with that choice. Oh, oh, absolutely. You know, you'll give me a gun and drop the charges. Yeah, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> I can be a criminal for the state. That's right. You know, do you want me to kill? They take a known burglar. Guess what they teach me? Explosives. Oh, good. So now, you know, now I know how to circumvent a burglar alarm system, and I know how to blow shit up. And so I moved higher and, and started taking on jewelry stores. Thanks, thank, thank you for the uh, for the armed forces for yes. giving Ron the training, the training necessary, necessary to continue his career choice. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so they catch me coming out of a store. It's really hard (laughs) to say you didn't do it. Yeah, when when you've got smoke coming off (laughs) your hair, (laughs) your face is all blackened. Yeah, I've got the bag, you know. (laughs) There's a big hole in the bag. Literally, they caught you holding the bag. Hole in the bag. (laughs) Oh, this? I don't know what this is. I don't know how I got here. (laughs) So they nailed you, and you go to the you go go to prison. Real time. Real time. Real time. Hard time. Yeah. Yeah, Not child time. No, no. Eighteen months in solitary confinement while I was there. Why solitary? What the hell did you do? Did you did you start some shit to get out of the general population? Yes. Yes, absolutely. I was little, I was pretty, I was white, I was from out of state. I had no homies on the yard, right? Yeah. Nobody to cover my back. And the only way that you can get respect, you know, is through uh extreme measures and so i did some extreme measures and they decided i was too dangerous to be on the main line yeah. so they put me in segregation you're like thank god i got some thinking to do absolutely and uh, so anyway when i get out i'm walking out and the, the guard goes you'll be back and i said no i won't he said yeah you will and I said, no i won't i won't you know he said your type never changes and i was well you couldn't be more wrong and when I tell this story on stage, which I don't do very often, maybe once out of every hundred shows, I say that, you know, I wish or hope that 30 years later, you know, he's laying on his fat ass somewhere in some trailer watching The Tonight Show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and there I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, that's a kid. So <laughs> he did but that, was, right. that was the end of the criminal life. Right there, you know, when so I in walked a sense, out of that prison. In a sense, you were rehabilitated. I was rehabilitated. So the prison, it works. It did, it did work. And I owe a lot to a psychologist that was in there. Oh, yeah? And yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, credit where credit is due. Uh, and what, what was the message that you got that, that really changed it? I mean, what changed the wiring? He had me read something It's uh, that... Uh, I, I saw myself in it, and it was called Rebel Without a Cause. And it was not had anything to do with the movie. I think the movie this was a psychological study by a guy named, I think, Linder. And it was about a middle-class kid, you know, that just became an outlaw. And And I'm reading this, and I'm going, that's me, man, you know. That's yeah. me. You know, he's rebelling, but he doesn't know exactly what he's rebelling against. I was rebelling against all kinds of things, but instead of striking out at the things, I struck out at, at everybody, so to speak. Yeah, I know? think that's a way that you know some of us define ourselves. That you know, wh- whatever you come from, parentally or whether you don't have parents, that you know, you, it becomes difficult with if you don't have guidance that you can rely on, and you, you're left to your own devices to invent yourself. You're probably going to go the dark path. Yeah, well. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I yeah, you're did. angry, you're pissed yeah, off. I'm angry and pissed off, and at the hypocrisy of everybody, of every fucking buddy. Right, like my parents. You know, I, my mother's a religious psychopath, and my dad's not there. 
Right. You know, the, right. You know, so they're lying to me. The schools are lying to me because I could read. Yeah. You know, I'm yeah. going to Catholic schools and, and reading uh, uh, Martin Luther and, and, and uh, you know, yeah. uh, uh, and then bringing these questions to class and they're telling me lies. Yeah. You know, and, you know, and eventually we'll screw it. You so know? you you found out early on the system is rigged. It's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. And they're just trying to brainwash me into fitting into this fucking ridiculous charade. In a way, I don't think I thought it through that deep, you know. <laughs> I, I didn't think. That's my job. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think I went any past, you know, this is all bullshit. Yeah, fuck this. <laughs> Fuck this. <laughs> that was as deep as my thinking was at that time. It got to, fuck this, man. So you get out of prison that stretch, and then what, you're, you're done with prison, and then what happens? Well, I get lucky. Yeah. Uh, can't get a job because, you know, there's not much jobs for, you know. you know, <laughs> an, an ex-con. An ex-con jewel thief. <laughs> you know, burglar. Do how to blow shit up. And uh, I get a job. I'd had several jobs of no consequence, but I finally get a job selling encyclopedias door to door at night on commission. Now that's a job that does definitely does not exist anymore, Ron. I know, I know, that's gone. <laughs> an encyclopedia, what's that? Yeah, an encyclopedia. That really happened, huh? You sold door to door books. I became vice president of Macmillan Publishing Company. Holy shit! And is that I mean, Texas? Macmillan? Yeah. Fuck no. They're the third largest in the world. So they're in, like, New York? No, New York, yeah. Uh, and I was in, you know, in sales. What happened was I was so good at doing what I did, because I can talk, so they made me a trainer. To I'm train salesmen. To train salesmen. Yeah. I was real good at that. Yeah, yeah. So they had me train people to train people. Yeah. I was real good at that. So, so it's almost like a pyramid thing. Yeah, yeah, so I, you know, they gave me an office. I, you know, I number one office in the nation. So they gave me a district. I'm number one district. So they gave me a region. Of, you know, this this all happens pretty rapidly. And, that's the, and then you have an empire. Then I have an empire. Ah. And they promote me up. Then British Printing hires me away. I I run British Printing in the South Pacific for a little bit until they get ready to fuck me. So I left them and started my own company in Sydney with with Groyer and Walt Disney distributed all their stuff in where south australia you were in australia yeah but i had offices in the philippines and in africa and new zealand and you travel around to these offices yeah yeah i built the whole thing from scratch great american business sales door-to-door sales all of it all of the whole thing from mail order to door to door to so corporate now, now how the fuck (laughs) from there to here how the fuck do you get from there to to, here to where we're sitting in las vegas las vegas doing a podcast well yeah let's let's go to (laughs) that's a well-known comic because like (laughs) and then you are uh, many people don't know this because a lot of people don't respect the current and contemporary history of uh of comedy but you know ron ron shock was one of the cornerstones of the houston school the outlaw school that I guess uh, I, I think the original outlaws were yourself and Riley Barber and uh, Bill Hicks and uh, uh, Steve Epstein and John Fernetti. John Fernetti yeah. and Kennison came later. No, Kennison was there before. When I got hit the scene, which was '82. Okay, Kennison- so this is ten years after Sydney. What? When did you decide to be a comic? How'd you get to Texas first? When I came back, I got disgusted with the publishing business, too. You know, I was just lying. I was stealing with a pencil. Right. Okay, you know, I'd worked. So you've stole with explosives, with firearms, with with a pencil. pencil, You know, and I I did some consulting for other companies, and it just, it was more the same. Every sales talk contained lies. Every advertisement contained lies. They weren't necessarily overt they right. were sometimes covert they were sometimes just insinuating something that wasn't true leading you in a different direction blah 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 so ah, fuck man and so uh just fuck it again and so i i, I was my wife was the woman that i'd met in australia heather so heather's making good money i've set up a little firm that makes me money without me doing anything i love that yeah and i decided to go to college I'm just approaching 40. And I said, okay, well, you know, I've never been to college. I take some courses that interest me. One of them is theater. Mm-hmm. Hayden Rourke, who is the guy that played Colonel Bellows on I Dream of Jeannie, is a friend of my professor's. 
and he comes to class one day, and he sees me perform a little skit, likes it, takes me out to lunch. Over lunch, I tell him a story, right? And and he's just, you, you're funny. You yeah. ought to be a stand-up comic. And uh, I've never even been in a comedy club. Never been in a comedy club in my life. I saw one comic. I saw Buddy Hackett in a dinner theater one time. But that was it. Never was, thought about it. He was funny. Oh, he was really funny. He was one of those guys that you couldn't help but be funny. He was my mentor here. I became very good friends with Buddy Hackett. Did you really? Yeah. Uh, he liked what I did. And, you know, of course, I liked what he did. I knew his son, Sandy. And Buddy took me under his wing for a couple of years. It was real interesting. You know, I'd well, sit backstage you know, with him after one of his big shows. And I thought we he drank was, vodka and I thought and he was talk. the best. Hey, you know, I, I, when I was a kid, I, 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 uh, I wrote to him and asked him for his autograph. Is that right? And he sent a picture. Oh, he was, he was a sweetheart of a guy. Well, that's now, that's, that's fairly recent history. So you're, so Major okay, Bellows. So, back, so Major, Colonel Bellows. Colonel Bellows. Says you ought to become a comic. So yeah. I go down to the comedy workshop and I walk in on a Tuesday as God is my witness, it was like a light shone on me and said, this is what you're supposed to do. And I had changed my morals over the year. I just couldn't lie for a living anymore. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't, you know, if I hated the game, why am I playing in it? Right. You know what I mean? Be true to yourself. Be true to myself. And so I'm looking for something. Yeah. I really am. And, I, and it was boom. And I go up on Sunday night and bomb horribly. And on Monday morning, basically shut my business yeah. down, you know, said, I'm a stand-up comic. And right after the miserable bombing experience. Uh, uh, then a fight breaks up on, uh, out in my set among the comics. The, my first night, my first night, I'm up at 1.30 in the morning, and there's only like, let's see, there's there's two people back, or a little tiny club. You yeah. ever in it? I mean, no, I was 88 seats. Yeah. Tiny, man. It's a mythic place. Yeah, and there's two people back here on stools along the bar and they're only here because they've been here during the entire show and it was horrible and they're gonna they're gonna fucking see it all right <laughs> there's four people down here to the left and the only reason they're there is they're too drunk to get out yeah all okay right? there's my wife and the guy that's going to go up after me the last act who is going to play with balloons uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> do some animals I don't know what the fuck he was gonna do. But he was, he was pacing me. and panicking, and, right? Pacing. And that's the amazing thing about about that. Particular. And he's got his wife and mother with him. So you got about four people in the in the audience that are tied to the comedian, and yet when you're waiting to go on stage, you don't give a fuck. You're just like, oh, just stay. Just the two guys, the drunk, guy, the one guy sleeping. Just stay. I know this I'm about kid to go wasn't on. even that smart. You know? <laughs> he, he was, you know, you know, he was stupid. He was, he, it was his one and only time in his show business. So okay, so okay, so I'm up there. And it starts out as a fake fight, but it, it, it becomes real, and, and so punches are thrown. And they're at the bar, which is slightly to the right of the stage uh, in, in the back, and the, it, it crashes into, into the club, right? My wife is sitting in the, the way of this wave of fighting comics who crash into the table and knock the table over, and they land on the ground. Jimmy Pineapple's on the bottom, and Riley Barber's trying to punch him, and people are pulling Riley off. And Jimmy's just Riley's laying. huge, too. He's huge. Yeah. He's fucking huge. <laughs> and they're all drunk. Yeah. And uh, I, I've only been like two minutes into my set. Yeah. And uh, I look at my wife, and I said, of all the things I expected, this wasn't <laughs> one of them. And I leave the stage. Yeah. And as I leave the stage, Dan Merriman, who was the MC, as he walks by me, he goes, it takes a lot of courage to do this. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as we're leaving, Heather, who was gorgeous, and uh, Pineapple's still laying on the ground. Yeah. And as we walk by, he looks up at Heather and goes, come back and see me again, babe. <laughs> These are my kind of people. Yeah. This is where I want to be. <laughs> yeah. That sold it. Beat this shit out of the corporate world right there. <laughs> Come back and see me again. It was like you were at home. Yeah. I was home. Yeah. Here's some guys that somewhere in their life they said, fuck, fuck it. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's go sure. make people laugh. Yeah, see, that's you know, it. It's the only worthwhile thing to do in America. Let's make people laugh.
And, yeah, and also, you know, speak your own fucking truth, you know, and have complete control over your game and what you say. Absolutely. And, and how you present it. I mean, that was what the amazing thing about uh, about uh, a few of the Houston comics, you know, especially you and Bill and Sam, and is that, you know, you guys were pushing an envelope that, you, you, know, you, were, were. you know, you were doing stuff that, you know, people were doing now. That a type of storytelling. It wasn't like Buddy Hackett storytelling. It wasn't Catskill storytelling. It was like, no, no. this is what I lived through. This is the life that I led. And this is why it's resonant and funny and human. And, and, and my experience is completely different than yours. And the only thing that's going to keep you here is my ability to engage you with the story. Engage you with the story, you know, and talk about subjects. You know, we talked about, we were doing, I mean, Lenny Bruce did, you know, Religion Incorporated, yeah. you know, and opened that door. We were doing stuff on religion that nobody else was doing at that time. You know, we're going after the preachers and saying, this is a lying motherfucker right here. Mm -hmm. You know, and here's why. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And make it funny, you know, and and uh, uh, we were talking, you know, we did those theme shows when we had the Texas Outlaw Comics. There was two groups. There was the Outlaws of Comedy, which was Kennison, LeBeau, Barber and Hicks. But that was only around for one show, and they did this show to get the money to move to L.A. Right. Okay. Kennison and LeBeau stay after about a year, and Barber and Hicks come back to Houston. Beaten. Yeah, which is about the time I show up. All right. right? So Kennison's already gone. Then in 84, I think, is when we first started, we started this group called Texas Outlaw Comics, and and we did theme shows, you know, Texas Outlaw At Comics. At the workshop? Well, yeah, we started at the workshop. And that was you and Bill? Me, Bill, Epstein, Barber, Pineapple, and Farnetti. Uh-huh. That was the original six. Now, Bill was what, 12? <laughs> Just about. Uh, first time I saw Bill, I went home and told Heather, I said, I've just seen a genius. Just seen a genius. This everybody else should just quit doing stand-up because really? this guy, you know, he's already doing Was it. he like 20? 22, uh-huh. 22, 23, something like that. He was, yeah, he's 18 years. He and Ellen, the woman I was with later, Heather, Heather thought I'd gone crazy, and I thought she had gone crazy, and so I left her and then was with this woman well, named Ellen. At least Ellen. you guys agreed to, to agree. Yeah. yeah we're, <laughs> You're the crazy. Other. I'm crazy. <laughs> What do you say we just flit? Just you, you, you take the house, I'll become a comic. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> Somehow it'll work out. Uh-huh. And, uh, but, yeah, he was 22 or 23. He was the same age as Ellen was. And born in 60, I think. Uh-huh. You know, uh, maybe 61. Uh, and he just had, I, I guess the thing is, is that, you know, I knew him a, a bit later on. We spent a, a few times uh, together talking and, and working together. But, it just seemed that was amazing uh, about Bill, and it must have been there early on, even though he wasn't talking about the subjects he grew to talk about. Right. Was there was a clarity of mind, absolutely. That you know, he, he like he he was able to to be very eloquent about things, very focused. And and what people don't really realize about Bill is that a lot of the stuff that he did that wasn't necessarily provocative on a political or cultural way, but was just mundane, was so well crafted. Yes. The guy could write a joke. <laughs> he could write a joke. Man. Yeah. His impressions of his mother and father that he did when he was, you know, starting out were so dead on, so funny, so everybody's dad. You know what I mean? Yeah, they yeah. were just fucking beautiful. And I was telling my uh, wife, Rhonda, I've been through a lot of women. Uh, yeah. But I said that. <laughs> I Maybe mean, I should be keeping this written down. You, like, know, uh, you remember them all. I, I, <laughs> I I told Rhonda when we were talking about Bill, I said he never got enough credit for his stage craftsmanship as well. He commanded that stage. He worked that stage. He knew how to work a microphone. He knew how to to pace, where to go. I think he did it naturally, but it was perfect stagecraft, you know. Mm -hmm. And and I, I, I think a lot of people, they're just so overwhelmed by his, you know, comedy in itself. They don't see all those other things that are going on. Yeah, how was, well he's doing that. Yeah, that that was what was always amazing to me is that even, you know people know him as a as a political uh, you know sort of prophet type of comic, but you know early on 
He always had that clarity and that delivery and the command of the stage. But he used to talk about mundane things, but he did it. Like one of my favorite jokes is, is that thing he says about he's been dating this woman about a year and a half. He figures it's time to ask, pop the big question, why are we still going out? <laughs> like you know, he just had a, a, like there was such a clarity to it. Such a clarity. And yeah, he could write one liners. Yeah. You know, he could write one liners. You know, he could write little things about going to school. You know, I mean, he was a kid when he started. He was 15, riding his bicycle down to the comedy workshop. Do you remember yeah. the point where, like, obviously, I, I think you might have had some influence in this. I don't know, because I know that, you know, he thanks you on, on at least one of his records, if not all of them. We, we, were, we, were, we were pretty close. Yeah. I wasn't as close as friend. I was like his uncle. That he That's really what I mean. That, yeah. you know, what, what do you think, you know, because of your experience as a person, that I have to assume that somebody like Hicks – you know, uh, looked up to that and, and, and respected it. But where did, where did you see him? Did you see the, the point where he turned into something bigger than just a comic? That where, Oh, yeah. Where, oh, yeah. What, 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 what brought that on and how did it happen? New York City brought it on. I, that's where I, I met him in New yeah, York. Yeah. It, it, once he got out of Houston and. He was only there for like 10 minutes in New York. Only a couple of years, I think. Yeah. But when he got there, I think because of the just the vibe of the city, he was able to turn loose totally, you know what I mean? And just stuff just poured out of him, just poured out. I'd, I'd see him, you know, and uh, for a week, and then I'd come back four months later, I'd see him do an hour of stuff that he didn't have right <laughs> the, the other time you know so the freedom of mind just blew open oh that, man know, he got oh. complete confidence in his in his and craft just let it go right and let it go let him be you know himself yeah and you know that's very that's a very difficult transition for all of us yeah you know to when you come to that point where you just decide fuck it yeah <laughs> i'm done really being be afraid a, yeah i'm done being afraid i'm gonna go ahead and be me and let's see how this works out you know and when bill did it when bill did it because he always knew, don't you know? He he always knew he was born knowing he was going to be a stand-up comic. He knew it yeah. from get-go, from mm -hmm. get-go. I mean, what a blessing to know who you are from from the time you can first form a coherent thought in your mind. You know, and little baby, I end up coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he knew. He knew. Yeah, know? I think I, I think I knew when I was like eleven. I, oh, I didn't think there was any. God, other... what a blessing you guys have. I Is mean, it? I guess that's one way to look at it. <laughs> you know, yeah, depends on how the night goes. <laughs> well, yeah, but you know what I mean. To know what you're gonna do and know what's inside of you early on. I spent all those years searching, man. Yeah, but you got good stories. If you didn't oh, spend I all got the years, you, I got good, what, good what would stories. You, what would the act be if you had not? <laughs> <laughs> and also, you had a very tangible moment of like, you know, if I go on with what I'm doing, you know, I'm I'm not going to come back from it. That yeah. I may not ever know who I am. Right, right. Uh, you, you know, because you, you know, money and all that stuff, and being part of a power structure. I mean, and, and seeing the chain of command, and then getting to the top of it. To actually get there and go, this ain't it. This ain't it, this man. <laughs> These are slimy motherfuckers. I told the head of ITT Financials to go fuck himself one day. I'm doing consulting work for him, and boy, it's just what a slimy group they are. Them and GE. I did some work for them, too. It, it took me about a week to figure out their scam, and they were stealing from the poor. Yeah. Oh man. The worst. Oh, they all geez. do. Oh God. They take every. They take their lives. <laughs> yeah. They yeah. take everything, man. If they take everything, they're going to take these people's property. Yeah. And the thing know? about comedy is, I, got, I read some interview I did. I, I I don't even know when I did. It must have been ten years ago. And I, one of the reasons I said that I like being a comic and I like comics is that comics tell the truth even when they're lying. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. That is very well put, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Even when they're lying, they're telling you the truth. One time I said this, I don't know who interviewed me, I don't remember where, but he said, well, you know, how was Bill and picking up stuff? I said, let me tell you a story. Bill and I go, he's he's over hanging out with me, and I'm, we're walking my great Dane around the block, okay, for his evening constitutional, me and Bill. And uh, during this walk, I go forth on the money system, you know, the gold standard and silver standards and Federal Reserve and how the banking system worked, blah, 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 because he wanted to know, you know, so yeah. he was just talking, blah, blah, blah. The next night, the next night, he does like maybe 15 minutes 
of side-splitting comedy on it. And I'm going, you know, I know all this stuff. I haven't thought of a single fucking funny thing yet <laughs> on it. Not a word. Not a joke. And he had minutes. You know, he had an act. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> on a subject, a very arcane subject, a very in-depth subject, you know what I mean? Not something that's bandied about, you know? You know what I mean? Right. Well, I think he was very good at... at, at at doing what what Lenny Bruce said, you know, set out, you know, set the rules to be, which is like, find the hot point, find where the hypocrisy is, and how are we being fucked? Yes, and and that he was able to probably put it all together, and how this is an elaborate system designed to fuck us. Exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, I knew it, but I couldn't get it down to the essence like he did. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's... <laughs> Yeah, he could button it down, man. It's funny that you know the myth of Hicks was so uh, has so been ingrained in comics and, and people that appreciate this shit he did. I mean, I was talking to some you know fairly low level comics once in uh, in Texas about Bill, and one of them had decided that uh, he was assassinated. That something that they had designed some sort of satellite ray. To give Bill pancreatic cancer. I'm like, you know, he was good, but I don't know if they really had, were gunning for him that much. <laughs> I don't think he not, not yet. No. no. But he never got a big following here. Nope. He never got a big following. Now he has one. Dead. Yeah, but even, you know, it's big by what he had, but it's not. Well, he created not such Ron a... Not White size or... But but the interesting thing about the, the estate and the memory and the fact that, you know, Bill was fairly diligent about, you know, getting the shit on tape. Yeah. That, like, he knew enough. Like, he had enough confidence to know that this stuff needed to be documented. So there's enough of it existing that has a timelessness to it that will always be... Born. Always be there, yes. Absolutely. Now, Absolutely. when he was uh, sick, did you spend time with him? I I have an incredible story about the night Bill died. Oh, really? Yeah, you want to hear a oh, story? Oh, I, th I think you sat me down in, in Canada and told me this. Yeah, dude. You, you want, this, is, this is a heavy-duty story. He calls me the night before he dies, and I'm in Lexington, Kentucky. It's, he dies on a Saturday. And on Friday, he calls me. He goes, I'm going to die tomorrow. I said, well, okay, but why do you think you're going to die tomorrow? And he said, Sam came to me in a dream last night. Kennison. Kennison. And I said, did Sam say? And then, Mark, it was like Kennison possessed me. I, I can't do people. Yeah. Whenever I try to do people, I sound like me yeah. trying to do somebody. But yeah. I don't sound anything at all like it. But I'm I'm doing a perfect Kennison. I'm screaming at him, you know, don't be afraid, Hicks. You're a pussy, Hicks. Step through the veil, blah, blah, blah. I don't even remember all the words. But I go on this rant in Kennison's voice. <laughs> I come like come to, and I go, is that what he said? He said, word for word, Ron. Get out of here. I said, then you're going to die tomorrow. And he said, you know, well, then, you know, goodbye. And I said, goodbye. I love you. I'll see you on the other side. And uh, so we hang up. So I call Ellen, and I said, tell, relay this story to her. I said, so, you know, you're going to get a call sometime tomorrow. Uh, you know, the bill died. So when Kenny and I, Kenny Moore is with me. Yeah. You know Kenny? I don't know if I know him. Kenny is the guy who hit the heckler over the head. Oh, yeah, with sure. The, oh, yeah. guy. Yeah. Well, he used to be my sidekick. He hit the guy in the head with the guitar. That's him. Kenny and I get back. <clears throat> phone's ringing. It's Ellen. Bill died. Okay. We sit down in a very similar to the way you and I are right now. Okay. I'm on a long couch, and it makes an L, and I'm on the long part, and Kenny was on the short part. Okay. In between us, or in front of the long, was a coffee table. And sitting next to me on the, on the couch is a pile of newspapers and a basketball on top of it with signatures from the University of uh, Kentucky basketball team, okay? The owner of the club is a big U.K. fan. Uh-huh. We've got a bong. And I said, well, let's smoke one to Bill mm -hmm. and send him on the way. So we take the bong between us, like you and I are right here, and we take a hit, and we blow it out simultaneously and say, goodbye, Bill. As we say that, this pile of papers and this basketball explode into flames. Just a whoosh, and it goes up. It catches the couch on fire, goes up, burns a hole in the ceiling. 
I reach over and throw the cushion on the ground, which it immediately burns a big hole in the rug. And uh, Kenny goes and, and gets uh, some water to throw on it. And I go, well, you know what, this is foolish. Let's drag this sub bitch outside. And I have to call the owner. You know, it's, 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 it's two o'clock in the morning and I'm leaving the next morning. And I go, you know, Jeff, I hate to wake you up, but Bill Hicks burned down part of your, your house to die. He goes, Hicks died today. I said, yeah, I know that. It's a long story. It's a long story, Jeff. (laughs) And I know you're not going to believe it. So I'll pay for everything, but I got to go. So the next day, Kenny and I stay up all night. I mean, how are you not going to stay up all night and go, what the fuck? Absolutely. How yeah. are you not going to stay up all yeah. night? How are you not going to be absolutely stunned by this? Yeah. And we talk and we talk and we talk. And we've been on like a three-week run out there, and we've started in, in Indianapolis, and we've got a rental car. Yeah, I'm going to drive up there, and I'm going to turn the rental car in. Kenny's truck's there. He's going to drive home. I'm going to get on a plane and fly home. So we're driving up there. It was in the wintertime, and it snowed the night before, the night that 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 bill died uh it snowed and so when we're driving up southern indiana going up 65 there towards indianapolis the fields are virgin white right and i'm driving kenny sitting in the passenger seat we've been talking about this and i i look towards him but he is looking away when i say this he's looking out the window I go, what do you think it all means? As I say it, there's a sign out there, and it says John 3.16. And we keep going. I said, you see that? Kenny goes, and the sign was blue. I said, you see that? He goes, yeah, that red sign. I said, well, no, it was a blue sign, but what did your red sign say? He said, John 3.16. We pull over. We make a turnaround on the internet interstate. We go back. We come back up that road. There was no sign. Come on. <laughs> and what does John 3.16 say? Huh? What did... He who believeth in me has, uh, has life everlasting, which is a misquote. That's not what Jesus said. In Greek, what it reads is uh, Jesus said, he who believeth what I'm telling has life everlasting. You know, if you understand this, you, you'll, you'll evolve. Now, you'll now w- what do you make of that? Did that are, are you a religious man? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In a Jesus way? Not in any way that you would reckon. I don't. I think every minister and preacher I have ever heard has got it all wrong. Uh, when I started going through moral change, so I was in a seminary when I was younger. You know, I come from a very strict Roman Catholic family, and Bill as well came from a, a very Baptist mother. Right. You know, we talk religion all the time. Uh-huh. I have actually read the the New Testament in Greek, uh-huh. and it's totally different. Yeah, it's totally different than what we were told it said. Just totally different. And by my early thirties, I was really doing some serious studying. You know, and and came to my own beliefs, they would not be similar to anything you would associate with Christianity, you know. So it, does it? Does that mean that it's, it's more about the, the teachings and the, the spiritual elements other than the deification of Jesus? It, yes, yes, it's, it's about the philosophical statements that he made. And see, most time, I don't want to get in a long discussion on this, but most time Christian ministers... When they quote anything out of the Bible, they never quote Jesus. They quote Paul or somewhere in the Old Testament mm-hmm. or blah, 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 blah. They never want to actually talk about what he said, mm-hmm. okay? Because mm-hmm. then, you know, well, they're going to start getting, you know, a little hypocritical. Right, right. Oh, that's <laughs> you know, he's not yeah. gonna, they're not going to – they never talk about the money changers in the temple. Isn't that odd? Right. There are no ministers ever fucking talk about, geez, the only thing that ever made him mad was the money changers in the temple because that would be a very bad sermon to give right before you pass the collection plate. Right. And, you know, Brett Butler always used to say that, that Bill Hicks was like Jesus in that scene. That, 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 that would be, that would be Bill. That's right. That right. would be Bill. Righteous anger. Right. Righteous anger. Right. You know, from a righteous man. But he spiritually was sort of, uh, you know, he was dead, you know, dead sure that this wasn't it. Yeah. But it, it didn't seem that from what I had listened to or what I've gleaned from, from, you know, what he has said that he was specific about his beliefs. I would say, 
that Bill Hicks and I had more conversations about God and spirituality than any other subject that we ever that, that we ever discussed. Okay, it was a running conversation, mm-hmm. and this conversation. The fact of the matter was, I did most of the talking. Bill would ask the questions, and I would answer him, you know. And mm-hmm. he'd go, well, what about this? And I'd walk him through that, you know. And his grasp of things, when it came to that, was, was amazing, you know. was just amazing. Uh, what, where, where do you think he, he, he stood? He believed that there was some sort of afterlife and some sort of crossing over i don't think he believed it at all no he knew it Mm -hmm. there's a real big difference Mm -hmm. you know we had some similar experiences in uh out of body experiences you know Mm -hmm. that that were were real you know when i did it not on drugs you know i I, part of my studies that i did that you know because i had to fucking know Okay, I had to know. I'm not going to take your word for it. <laughs> right. And what, how, did, how did those studies look? They left no doubt in my mind. Like what's one of the experiences? Oh, a combination of all of them. Believing my body was the, the, the final proof that I needed that we were indeed a spirit inside of a physical body just a vessel a a decaying vessel yeah a decaying vessel that we're here for a life lesson right okay and that i'm separate you know and it happened to me on lsd i'd floated up outside my body and ran into my wife on the on the uh, ceiling one time one time i flew with a with a hawk i had one experience leaving my body and i guess this would be the difference between someone who's a on a spiritual search versus somebody who is who is hopelessly earthbound is that the only thing i know about leaving my body is right when it happened all i felt was panic that i wouldn't be able to get back right in. panic's the very first one the f- I, I didn't want to do any traveling right oh no it's scary it's fucking scary yeah you know the first time what it took me like eight weeks of this exercise that i had learned from you know zen buddhism uh, an outreach vet of um, to be able to leave your body. Yeah. First time I only got just a little bit out, and it scared me so bad. You know, I went right back in, and there's a real loud clap. You know, almost like clapping your hands. You know, when I'm back in. Yeah. And the next night, I was able to get up, walk across the room, and I say walk because I felt like I was moving. I could like feel the air go by me. I had senses. But my eyesight was much more panoramic. Like a bird. I don't know. But I could see, you know, the the nose was gone. You know, I yeah. didn't see. You know, you see all this stuff on yeah. your face. You just don't pay attention to it. Yeah. You know, we see all the time. But I wasn't seeing it, right? I get all the way across the room, and I turn around, and I see myself sitting in the chair. And that scares me so much. <laughs> I end up back in, but I didn't need to know anymore. Did you have any moment where you're like, oh, look at that sad asshole just sitting there? It was very strange to see yourself. Like the one thing I know about whether or not I'm going to cop to believing in anything is that there have been times on stage where I've left my body. And I, I was very happy that uh, that I was able to do that. Right? <laughs> Where it's like this isn't going well, and part of me goes, you know what? I'm gonna Let's go get ahead. out of here. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be in back. You know, you go ahead and do what you got to do out here. <laughs> I think I've done that too. <laughs> I'll meet you backstage. I don't want to have to go through wanna, this with you. I don't want to go through this with you. <laughs> I hate this kind of pain. Yeah, yeah. A little too much for me. <laughs> All the humiliation. Yeah, yeah. I'll be backstage yeah, yeah, yeah. getting stoned. Yeah. Hurry back. <laughs> don't go over your time this time. Yeah, I want to get the long. fuck out of here. <laughs> don't go long. So now, okay, so now you're in Vegas. Now we're in the present mode. All right. And you come out here to work? First time? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I moved here in late 89. Actually, I moved here. I know, I guess it must have been right at the beginning of 90. Um, uh, I was out here for Christmas of 89, and uh, a sentence made me move to, to Vegas. I'm at a poker table, and this old man 
turned sitting next to me, we, you know, just a perfect Vegas character, yeah. cranky, gnarly old poker playing dude. And he goes, you know what I like best about Christmas in Vegas? I go, no, sir, what? And he goes, no fucking kids. <laughs> I said, that's a good point. <laughs> I said, let's move to Vegas, baby, because the workshop was closing, you know, and I came out here and lived here 90, 91, 92, part of 93, and then I was doing so much TV, you know, they wanted me to, to move to L.A. and in an in a, in a absolutely terrible decision, you know, I did. If I'd stayed here, I'd own this place. Mm -hmm. I was really, really popular, really popular. In what year? The early 90s. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, I mean, it's everybody was on my bandwagon. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm working... Yeah. 16, 18 weeks a year here at every club, you know. I mean, just, you know, the newspaper's writing about me. I'm on the TV, blah, blah, blah. It was really going very well. And then I went to L.A. and disappeared. And it's easy to happen. It happens out there. It's so easy for that to happen. Get online. I just. Funny man. Disappeared. Yeah. You know, I had all these wonderful reviews and, you know, highfalutin sounding stuff and. You know, I was real close. You know, they were everybody was talking. The buzz, 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 buzz. USA Today writes me up. Buzz, buzz, buzz. You know, but well, the weird thing is that with somebody like you, who's like really a pure comic, you know that unless you know they're going to throw you in, you know, clown shoes and put you at the center of a sitcom, oh, I mean, what are you going to do? I, I well, I turned some of them down. You mm -hmm. know, they wanted me to be the stupid southerner next door, mm -hmm. and I don't want to. Uh, move that stereotype along, you mm -hmm. know, yeah, I'm Southern, but I'm not stupid, you know, and some of the brightest people I know are Southern, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I don't like, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One mean, time they want me to be a dad, and I've got to have six kids. I said, shit, I don't even like my kids. <laughs> <laughs> I can't pretend. Yeah, I can't <laughs> pretend. Dude, find something for me to do. You know, you mm -hmm. want me to be this other guy. Shit, I've spent a... A lifetime becoming this guy. Yeah. But you know, when Ellen, you knew about Ellen, right? The woman I lived with. Mm -hmm. And well, she was ejected from a car and it broke her neck and crushed her skull and broke her back and blah, blah, blah. And I quit working and took care of her for three years until she died. And during those three years, comics supported me, Mark. I mean, they. You know, I mean, it was miraculous. Oh, wait a minute, I did. I I believe that I I helped out because yeah, I'm Lee, sure you did. Lee Arleth was was spearheading uh, uh, a lot of that, wasn't she? Yeah, she was. Uh, all across, Sandy DePerna was involved. Yeah, in it, yeah, yeah. Know, I do, Tom I do remember. It. Yeah, you know, that's Sharippa right. here that's in right. Vegas yep. did it. And so when Ellen finally died uh, in 2000, uh, I was down to like just enough money to. You know, to be able to rent a place here for for me and my dogs, I had like eight dogs, so I had to put up a huge deposit, and I had just enough left over to sit down at a poker table. And for six months, I supported me and my roommate until I got bookings and he found a job, and you know, blah blah blah. And I've been here ever since. Jesus, that's you know? a deep, horrible story. Yeah. Well, it was. Tale Two Cities said it was the best of times and worst of times, and it was. It was the worst time of my life, and it was the best time of my life. Uh, it's the only time that I did something totally, completely for somebody else. You know, I left Ellen before she had the wreck. I left, she'd become a heroin addict, mm. and... She, she wouldn't kick it. She wouldn't go into rehab. Right. You know, I was working on the road. She was got involved in that scene there in Hollywood. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. No, she was hurt so bad. They told me she'll never walk or talk or know my name. And I said, "Well, you're wrong." And and I took her out of the hospital and took her up at the farm, and I taught her to walk and to talk and to remember my name. You know, and. Uh, Eight months to the day when they told me that, she walked into a restaurant and ordered a meal off the menu. She couldn't say it. Speech was really hard, but she could point to what she wanted. And the next afternoon, she had a stroke and went all the way back to square one, and we did it again. But this time, it took a year and a half, and then she had another stroke, and that killed her.
Jesus. You know. But during that battle, you're talking, I mean, it was, we fought the good fight. You know what I mean? We fought the good fight. And it, it was the best of times and worst of times. Well, yeah, it sounds like uh, that through that, that's one of those things where you really realize that, that that life is what it is. And this is what you were dealing with. And you couldn't run from it. And, and your, you know, your humanity and your humility and everything about you as a person hung in the balance of this action. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was going to define me as a human being right here, mm -hmm. you know, and I couldn't walk away. Couldn't walk away. Well, God bless you. You know, I mean, she would have done the same for me, even in her heroin stupor. You know what I mean? Because yeah. when I left, I really wanted it to, you know, work as a catalyst for her to, to go, Jesus, up. what, you know, we were perfect together. You know, and I don't want to, you know, I'm married again. I've, I've been so lucky in that. And Rhonda's a wonderful wife. And loves me to death and i love her but ellen and i were something special you know what i mean yeah and, and we were it was you know anybody that knew us we were just we we're peas out of the same pod man we were just yeah. you know you know we we were together 11 years and had one argument one that's just impossible what was it over where to eat in chattanooga <laughs> <laughs> we settled it by she going one, one place and I went another. And for some reason, it became a heated argument, but that was the only one we ever had. That's fucking You amazing. know, and nobody can say that nowadays. So, Well, I'll tell you, you know, I, I, I think that uh, you, you're here in Vegas. You're still doing stand-up. And playing poker. And playing poker. And uh, and if people want to see what you're doing, that the, the short film that was uh, done about the story about being in prison, is up at ronshock.com, or you can look it up on YouTube. Yeah, you can look at Ron Shock, Orleans Parish Prison, 1958, is how you it takes you right to it. It's but a sweet little piece. I watched it the other day. It it's great. not funny, folks. It's a you know, it's not a funny one. And now, what about uh, you? Got any uh, CDs available up there too? Because I think a lot of people don't really realize uh, that you know you're you're a very important voice, and and you've been out there a long time, and you're a, a real stylist, and and certainly. Uh, I've comics listen to this and, and, and a lot of other people that might not, uh, uh, recognize you or your work. And is, is there stuff available? Oh yeah. I have five CDs and I have three DVDs. That's a lot. Yeah. You know, and oh, I'm getting ready to release some more. Well, I tell you, it's great to see you. And oh, it, thanks Mark. And, and it's yeah. a great, uh, great conversation. <laughs> Thank you very much. This was great fun. This was great fun. Ron Shock. Bye. back in the garage it's raining here in los angeles i landed in burbank about an hour ago i think i've got the flu or maybe i'm just uh, it's just the repercussions of being in las vegas for three days and i you know i was thinking back on it after I, I i got home about being there when i was a kid and when i was there with my grandma goldie because there was a time before i must have been out there when i was about seven or eight years old i went to meet my grandparents and this is one of those things where i, I really credit her for sort of inspiring me to be a comedian because she was so affected by it. My grandfather uh, loved comedy so much, and, and they just they, they loved going to see the comedians. And I remember one time, and I don't know how this didn't frighten me out of show business, to be honest with you, but uh, I remember being there with my grandmother. I must have been under 10. And my grandfather used to love Jimmy Durante. He always used to do the cha-cha-cha-cha, uh, you know, uh, inky-dinky-doo thing. And uh and I didn't know who he was, and, and, and they, they would show me him in movies, but it, you know, it was out of my, my time realm. But I, I, de I definitely, you know, my, my grandfather just loved the guy. And I met my grandmother in Vegas, and apparently Jimmy Durante was still working. I mean, he must have been a hundred years old, but he was staying at, at a hotel in Vegas. And my grandmother had taken it upon herself to find out where he was staying and get his room number, which I do not understand looking back on it. And she was going to take me up to Jimmy Durante's room to meet him. And I was excited, and she was excited, and, and I don't know how she worked the magic to actually get an entertainer's room number, but she did, and she's telling me we're going to meet the schnoz, and we're going to, you know, it's going to be very exciting, Jimmy Durante, and I'm like, I can't wait. And we go up to this hotel room, and my grandmother knocks on the door, and the door opens, and a troll answers the door. He had no makeup on. He had glasses on. He had no hair. He was like 90. He was wearing a tank top t-shirt. 
He's like, how are you? And I'm like, ah, grandma. Well, it, 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 you know, you know, and of course, Goldie was like, uh, you know, well, could you just do the cha 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 cha? You know, he did it. It was like cha cha cha, but it might as well have been like. Bleh. And it had a profound effect on me, but it, but but not enough to to not make me want to uh, to be in show business because boy, the illusion is powerful. And uh, and I I got to say, uh, if I learned anything from that. Because I am very generous with my fans, and uh, and and for him to do that for a kid, even though he scared me, uh, was a very sweet thing to do. Thank you for listening. Please go to uh, punchlinemagazine.com for all of your uh, comedy information needs, and justcoffee.coop, of course, and wtfpod.com uh, for everything uh, you know WTF related. You can donate, you can buy T-shirts, you can follow us on Twitter, you can email the show. I really appreciate you listening. I hope this wasn't too sad. I found that Vegas made me. A little sad, but I'm okay now.